0: this episode of A New York Minute in History,
1: it was just a ballet in the sky and a feeling of belonging to something that was really big.
2: It wasn't just the pilots; there were ground support personnel, nurses, parachute packers, civilians, cooks. Mm. To keep one pilot in the air really took ten support personnel
0: we recognize the amazing stories of some of New York's Tuskegee Airmen. It's all up next, right after this.
3: from the Irish invasion of Canada to the early days of the movies. If you are interested in broadening your understanding of New York state history, then this is the podcast for you. I'm Susan Hughes, historian and archivist for the William G. Pomeroy Foundation, a proud sponsor of A New York Minute in History. The Pomeroy Foundation is a philanthropic organization based in Syracuse, New York. One of our main initiatives is to help people celebrate their community's history by providing grants for historic markers and plaques. Here in the Empire State and across the country, we support a diverse range of marker programs that include commemorating food history, civil rights, folklore, and sites on the National Register of Historic Places. As the nation's leading funder of historic markers, the Pomeroy Foundation has awarded over 1,800 grants since 2005. To learn more about the Foundation's grant programs, visit WGPFoundation.org. That's WGPFoundation.org.
4: Welcome to a New York Minute in History. I'm Devin Lander, the New York State historian.
0: And I'm Lauren Roberts, the historian for Saratoga County. This month, we celebrate Veterans Day and pause to express our gratitude to all those past and present who have served in the armed forces of the United States. And on behalf of a New York Minute in History, we want to thank all the veterans who have served our country. On this episode, we are honored to focus on a marker commemorating a veteran of World War II. Located at 212 Cascadilla Street in the city of Ithaca, Tompkins County, it is titled Tuskegee Airmen. And the text reads Verdell Lewis Payne, born here October 1st, 1919, pilot and flight officer with the Tuskegee Airmen, U.S. Army Air Forces, World War II, William G. Pomeroy Foundation, 2021. So, we're going to talk a little bit about who Verdell Payne was and this important accomplishment in his life. As the marker says, Verdell was born October 1st, 1919, in Ithaca, and actually another famous person was also born at this address. Best-selling author Alex Haley, who wrote the book Roots, was born in the same house as Payne only two years after. Verdell received his student pilot license at the Ithaca airport around the age of 18, which would have been uncommon for a young black man in the late 1930s. I spoke with Dr. Thomas Campanella, a professor at Cornell University and the applicant for Verdell Payne's William G. Pomeroy marker.
5: I've always been very interested in aviation, and I, I am actually a licensed pilot myself. And when I was writing my most recent book about Brooklyn, it's titled Brooklyn, The Once and Future City, I uh, I have a whole chapter about Floyd Bennett Field, which was uh, the first municipal airport in New York City. Uh, I was looking at African American pilots in New York State, and I came across this name, uh, Verdell Lewis Payne, and Ithaca, New York, and that of course led me down another rabbit hole where I you know I started researching Payne, and uh, and that's how basically I came to discover that he was a He was uh, really one of the first African Americans to get a pilot's license in New York State. I don't know if he was the first, but he was among the the first group. You know, I will say it's not an enormously rich background that we have about him. Exactly how Payne became interested in aviation really is not something I was able to determine.
0: According to a newspaper article, while Verdell was young, he met his future wife, Theodora Mitchell, of Mamarinac, New York, while she was in Ithaca going to school at Cornell. And he followed her back to her hometown, and then shortly after, in 1942, enlisted in the United States Army. He left for training at the end of July. And by the end of the year, Verdell was stationed in Bangor, Maine, with an aviation squadron which is where he and Theodora got married. Sometime between 1943 and 1945, Verdell was transferred from the airfield in Maine and took part in the Tuskegee Experience at the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. In April of 1945, Verdell graduated at the rank of flight officer, and he served as part of the 99th Fighter Squadron. So let's talk a little bit about what the Tuskegee program was, how it got started, and maybe how someone like Verdell would have ended up as a Tuskegee airman.
4: I think these are great questions, Lauren. I think the first thing we have to realize is that the United States military during this era was completely segregated. Black soldiers and white soldiers were not thought of as having the same amount of ability. And that goes back to a report that was commissioned by the Defense Department in 1925, called the use of Negroes in war. And among many other racist things that this report projected was black soldiers could not fly airplanes or be pilots in the military because they lacked essentially the mental acumen. Now, Verdell Payne himself was a civilian pilot. Uh, there were other black civilian pilots during the 1930s, but the military was still segregated. I spoke with Dr. Lisa Bratton, professor of history at the Tuskegee University.
2: From 2000 to 2005, I was a historian for the U.S. National Park Service Tuskegee Airmen Oral History Project. While I traveled around the country for five years interviewing the Tuskegee Airmen. The Army War College, which we kind of liken to the Pentagon, they basically stated that the Negro is a subspecies of the human family, does well following orders, but doesn't do well as leaders, cowardly in battle, etc. And so this is the environment that uh, the Tuskegee Airmen came to be.
4: But this was World War II. There was a need for pilots, and I think the Army Air Force has realized Uh, that they needed to recruit black pilots. Why is it called the Tuskegee Experience? Well, that's because the Tuskegee Institute, which is now called Tuskegee University, which is a historically black college in Alabama, was the first to be awarded the contract by the Defense Department to train pilots.
2: One reason was the weather, and the other reason was they felt that they could keep the pilots in check because Tuskegee, being in Alabama, had a strong environment of segregation. The men came from everywhere, even Iowa, California, places in the 1940s where you might not think that African-Americans lived, but uh, the airmen who came from the North were dealing with a different type of racism. When they would travel on, they talked a lot about traveling on the train, from north to south, because for many of them, it was their first time. Before they get to Washington, D.C., they can sit anywhere in the train they want. When they get to Washington, D.C., they had to move to a segregated car. And when they pulled up into a town to let people on and off the train, they had to close the curtains. And uh, but that was, a, that was a, you know, a, a painful, stressful time for them. Because we have to remember, too, these were 19, 20, 21-year-olds, very mm-hmm. young. In the beginning of the Airmen Project, they all had to be college graduates. And after a while, when the war heated up a little bit more, um, the requirement was changed to two years of college for pilots. It is said that to keep one pilot in the air really took 10 support personnel. So the Tuskegee Airmen were, it wasn't just the pilots, there were uh ground support personnel, think about nurses, parachute packers, civilians, cooks, there were women as well. The women I interviewed primarily were the nurses, but there were also some wives who were on the various military bases with their husbands providing support.
4: This began in 1941. They were in existence between 1941 and 1946. And during that time, they graduated 996 pilots. Cadets were initially trained to be combat pilots, but over time, there was also training for navigators and bomber pilots.
2: The group that went overseas, their job was primarily to protect the bomber. The bomber has 10 men in size. They're big, they don't move very well, they're kind of gangly and slow, and so the fighter pilots surround that bomber and um, try to fend off enemy warfare. And so the job of the Tuskegee Airmen was to protect the bombers.
4: The Tuskegee Airmen were required to undergo uh, specific testing and training. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, in general, they took the same tests because the tests were military tests. But there were several occasions where men told me that when they took the test, if they scored well, particularly if they scored higher than whites who were taking the test, they were forced to take the test again Mm -hmm. because it was just assumed that they must have been cheating. The other part that made the Tuskegee Yemen stand out differently was that they. I had to stay overseas longer. So generally, a military person would go overseas for about six or seven months, maybe eight, and then go home. That's what whites were able to do. But the Tuskegee Airmen, since they were dealing with a smaller population of African-Americans, they had to wait much longer for their replacement. So they might have to stay overseas two or three years.
0: After Verdell's graduation from Tuskegee, he was stationed at Walterboro, South Carolina. And although he served throughout the majority of World War II, he never saw overseas combat. As he related later in life, he got very, very lucky. He was sent orders to ship out. And though he wasn't told where he was going, he was guessing by the clothing list that they gave him that it was most likely that he was to be headed to the South Pacific. However, the night that his flight was supposed to leave the Japanese surrendered to the Allied forces and the flight was canceled.
4: Despite the fact that Verdell Payne himself did not serve overseas, the Tuskegee Airmen, who were at the time known as the Red Tails because they had distinguished uh, red-painted tails on their fighter aircraft, did serve in a very large capacity during the war. Estimates suggest that they flew 1,267 missions and 6,381 combat sorties with the 12th Air Force in Europe between 1943 and 1944, and also flew 311 missions and 9,152 combat sorties with the 15th Air Force between June 1944 and May 1945. The Tuskegee Airmen were known as one of the most successful escort units. Throughout the war, they had a very low percentage of their bombers actually lost. They received a variety of of citations and awards, including three presidential unit citations, the Legion of Merit for their colonel, Benjamin O. Davis Jr. He also received a Silver Star. Members of the Tuskegee Airmen received 96 Distinguished Flying Crosses as a unit, eight Purple Hearts, 25 Bronze Stars, and 1,031 Air Medals, which is amazing.
0: I was lucky enough early on in my role as Saratoga County historian, I was lucky enough to be a part of honoring a Tuskegee Airman from Saratoga Springs whose name was Clarence Dart. He was actually born in Elmira, but after the war he moved and uh, remained the rest of his life in Saratoga Springs. He was actually drafted in 42, and he became part of the 99th Fighter Squadron, which is part of the 332nd Fighter Group, the same group that Verdell Payne would have been a part of. Clarence flew 95 missions as a Tuskegee Airman. He was actually shot down twice and survived. He was the recipient of two Purple Hearts for injuries that he had sustained. He earned numerous other commendations and medals as well including 5 distinguished flying crosses the air medal with 4 oak leaf clusters the New York State conspicuous service cross and the New York State service star he remained active in the Saratoga Springs community there are people who remember that he used to give neighborhood children rides in airplanes he was on the Salvation Army board he was part of the New York State Air Museum in 2011, Saratoga County honored him just before he passed away in 2012, and I was happy to be a part of that ceremony. Uh, he was an amazing man, and I'm glad that we get a chance to to talk about yet another amazing story from the Tuskegee experience.
4: Yes, uh, New York had uh, a variety of Tuskegee airmen, including Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart Jr., who is still alive. He's 98 years old. He was originally born in Virginia, but moved to Queens when he was two years old. WAMC's Jim Lavoulis spoke with him in 2020.
1: I was living near LaGuardia Airport in New York at the time. These uh, fighter aircraft were taking off. Uh, They got into formation and they were very flying, very, very low over the city. I was curious as to what was going on, but... uh, When I did get from Sunday school, I went upstairs, and of course the news was on at the time then that the uh, Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor. Uh, I immediately felt that it wouldn't be long before I would be uh, called into the service because uh, the draft had started, and even though I was only, uh, I guess, 16 or 17 at the time, it wouldn't be long before the uh, draft would call me up.
6: And you were eventually drafted, is that correct?
1: That's correct.
6: As a fighter pilot, you flew 43 combat missions over Europe, and you were awarded a Distinguished Flying Cross. What went through your mind when you were in the air in those moments?
1: Well, it was a sort of a love of of flying there. When I first went overseas, I I, I was flying formation in the uh, first couple of missions that I had, and I had no idea of uh, of what was going on except that I was keeping close to my uh, leader at the time there, but soon after I started uh, getting acclimated to being up in the combat zone there, being flying in large formations with the uh, other aircraft, I got to really enjoy the idea, the, the panorama, I would say, of the scene I would see before me with the hundreds of bombers and the hundreds of fighter planes up there, and all of them pulling the condensation trails. And uh, it was just a ballet in the sky and a a feeling of uh, belonging to something that was really big. And uh, I must say that even though it was wartime, I found it exciting and enjoyable.
6: During one of those missions, you've said that you were in the crosshairs of a German fighter. Do you recall having time to think in that moment, or did you just act?
1: I just acted. All my previous training came to fore, and uh, my whole uh, effort at the time there was to get out of his crosshairs, because he had me dead to right. I went into a very, very steep dive, I guess what they call a uh, split S. I was fairly close to the ground at the time there, and I was making some very, very tight turns, trying to shake him off of my tail while I was down near the ground there. And evidently, I don't know whether he was an inexperienced pilot or or what, but uh, he went into a high-speed stall. Uh, in other words, he lost control. He crashed, and uh, I did get credit for destroying his aircraft even though uh, he was on my tail there.
6: One of your fellow fighters, Walter Manning, was shot down over Austria. Can you share with us what happened to him?
1: Yes. Uh, Walter was uh, shot down and uh, there were seven of us at the time. We were over in uh, Austria and we were on what was known as a fighter sweep, looking for targets of opportunity. And uh, we ran into a horde of uh, FW-190s. They were German fighter planes there, and big fight ensued, and uh, three of us uh, of the five were, were shot down. One made it back to Yugoslavia and was able to get back to uh, friendly territory the same day. Another was uh, killed instantly. Uh, he was shot down, and Walter Manning... Uh, I didn't know what happened to him at first. I know that he he did bail out, but we didn't hear anything from him uh, or about him until years later. An investigation had taken place many, many years after he had gone down, and they found out that he landed safely in his parachute, but he was uh, picked up by a uh, mob that delivered him to the uh, local jailhouse waiting for the military to pick him up and take him to the uh, prisoner of war camp. While he was waiting there, two nights later, another mob came and broke into the jail, took Walter out, and uh, lynched him. They hung him from a uh, lamppost. He was uh, not the only uh, uh, American, or I should say allied airman, that was uh, lynched in Austria. Uh, There were a number of them, but to get the crowd worked up by uh, eyewitnesses that were there, they testified that the uh, Nazi soldiers were working up the uh, emotions of the uh, Austrian people and uh, telling them stories about racial uh, epithets about Walter Manning and that he should be lynched. That's what they, they would do in his country. And uh, that's exactly what the mob did.
6: So World War Two ends in 1945. You continue to serve in the Army Air Forces until 1950. Can you describe uh, what you did after the, your service?
1: Well, yes. I got out of the service because of a uh, large reduction in force. But uh, when I got out of the service, I decided, well, let me see, even though I know there was prejudice and discrimination as far as employment in the airlines at the time, realizing that I had accumulated a large number of flying hours, and I applied for two airlines as a pilot, and I was uh, rejected, summarily rejected. I decided that it didn't look like I would be able to get a job as a uh, pilot in the airline, so I decided to go to school and get my uh, degree. I got a degree in mechanical engineering from New York University and stayed in the civilian field uh, as an engineer. I'm so happy to say that even though I was not able to realize my ambition as far as flying for the airlines was concerned, is that not many years after, I guess it was around 1970, about 20 years After I had initially applied there, African-Americans were being accepted as uh, pilots in the airlines until today.
4: uh, Every major airline
1: that we have in the country, we have airmen and air ladies who are flying the uh, aircraft.
4: When we think about the legacy of the Tuskegee Airmen and the Tuskegee experience and all of those who served as part of this program, I think one of the most direct connections can be the actual desegregation of the United States Armed Forces, which happened in 1948, shortly after the end of World War II. President Harry Truman enacted the Executive Order Number 9981, which directed the equality of treatment and opportunity in all of the United States Armed Forces.
0: While the order did end segregation in the military... Many of the black Americans who fought during World War II still had to fight for equality back at home. The major benefit to veterans after the war, known as the GI Bill, did not apply to the majority of black Americans that fought in the armed forces. They were not eligible for many of the housing benefits due to redlining and racial covenants. Many of the universities were not open to blacks, so they were blocked from using the education benefits as well. And it was still quite a struggle for them on a daily basis as far as earning equality and civil rights in their own country.
4: Now, despite the fact that the Tuskegee Airmen today are are famous and there have been films made about them and many books written about them, it took several decades for them to receive the recognition that they currently have. In 1998, the Tuskegee Airmen National Historic Site was created at today's Tuskegee University. And in 2000, the National Park Service established an oral history program this was something that Dr. Lisa Bratton worked on between 2000 and 2005, and the project was successful in interviewing over 800 Tuskegee program staff and pilots. In 2007, the Tuskegee Airmen were collectively, not individually, awarded the Congressional Gold Medal by President George W. Bush in the U.S. Congress.
0: And, of course, we're still trying to bring to light these many incredible stories especially of new yorkers who were part of the tuskegee experience one way to do that is to erect these historic markers like the one for verdell Payne in ithaca after being discharged in 1946 verdell and his wife settled in mamarinac and raised four children verdell had a number of different occupations including an electrical inspector for a company that built fighter planes on long island a television antenna installer, a mill hand for a window and door factory, and the one he liked the best, a custodian at Mamaroneck Avenue School. He worked there for 14 years until his death in 1985. Verdell was buried at Calverton National Cemetery on Long Island.
2: I still go back to the Army War College report that said that we couldn't do this that we weren't smart enough to be successful and the Tuskegee Airmen proved them wrong in an environment where all of the cards were stacked against them. What will bring a Tuskegee Airman to tears is when they talk about how white German prisoners were able to use the officer's clubs and all the amenities and walk around the base with no restrictions but African-American officers were not able to use those same facilities. And when they got off of the ship, coming back home after maybe losing a limb, maybe they missed a child being born, or you know they've been away from their families for years, and they come off the ship, and the same sign, Negroes this way, whites this way. I mean, I can't imagine must've been one of the most hurtful experiences of life. But even in the midst of all of that, they persevered and they, they went on to show the nation and really to show young people what is possible. I traveled a lot with the Tuskegee Airmen, different speaking engagements all over the country. And almost without fail, uh, white gentlemen usually would come up to us and say, thank you, my father was a bomber. And if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be here. And they you know, tell their children, You know, shake this man's hand, thank this man, because if it wasn't for him, you might not be here. Descendants of bomber pilots really understand it and get the Tuskegee-Nearman legacy and the relevance.
0: Listening to a New York Minute in History. This podcast is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio, the New York State Museum, and Archivist Media, with support from the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. Our producer is Jesse King.
4: A big thanks to our guests, Dr. Lisa Bratton and Dr. Thomas Campanella. To learn more about our guests and show, check us out at WAMCpodcast.org. I'm Devin Lander,
0: and I'm Lauren Roberts.
4: Until next time, excelsior. Excelsior.